Well, hello and welcome to the first edition of the Carver Project podcast. And as I'm saying that, I realized just now we probably should have come up with a, a name for this, Penina. But yes, we, or we an intro that. or something. Yeah, you're the design person. I feel like you should have done that for us. Um, but anyway, uh, this is a, a new podcast, a new initiative of the Carver Project, hosted, co-hosted by me, John Anazu, and my esteemed colleague and co-teacher, Penina Laker, uh, both of us faculty fellows with the Carver Project, both of us teaching at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, we should probably, we'll put our bios on the website or something so people who know who we are. But anything else to add by way of what we're doing? No, I think I think that sounds great. Let's just jump into it. Yeah, we'll jump into our first guest. We are honored to have with us Dr. Nee Addy, who is an associate professor of psychiatry and cellular and molecular physiology at the Yale School of Medicine. And uh, Nee is also on the board of the Carver Project. So we start. We thought we'd start with a, a close connection to the Carver Project. And we are delighted to have you with us, Nee. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I'm excited to, uh, to jump in. Um, I thought we'd start with a question from Panina. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. Um, thanks for being here, Dr. Addy. And um, so I haven't had the chance to meet you in person. And um, so this is exciting for me to just get to hear your voice and to get to learn a little bit more about you. Um, so it might be helpful for me, and I'm assuming many of our listeners who don't know anything about you, to tell us a little bit about um, your research, maybe your journey to teaching, and um, yeah, and we can just really start there. Yeah, I can definitely do that. I have to say at the get-go, John, that was impressive. My my uh, departments are a mouthful, so you said it well. <laughs> <laughs> I practiced 10 times before that's we not, started. That's not always easy. <laughs> well, it's great to be here with you all, and I'm honored to be the first podcast guest um, and happy to jump into this conversation. So, yeah, Panina, to answer your question, just to talk a little bit about my path and my um, background, kind of my day-to-day work. What I do at Yale in the simplest sense is I run a research lab focused on trying to understand the brain biology behind different mental health states and different mental health challenges. So in particular, we focus on addiction, depression, and anxiety. And basically, like I said, we're trying to understand what's happening in the brain that allows those things to come online and really trying to understand the brain mechanisms behind that, but then also trying to think about if there's things that we can understand to have new therapeutic interventions, um, so new medications that may be able to help with some of those, some of those challenges. Uh, what we focus on in particular in the research in terms of addiction or substance use is relapse. So what we do is do work in animal models, so primarily in mice and rats. And people always ask the question, well, why are you studying uh, rats and mice? You can't ask them if they're depressed or struggling with you know, substance use issues and things like that. Um, but what I always say is that we can look at certain behaviors. So I always encourage people to think about what behaviors they associate with you know, someone that's in a depressed state or someone that's struggling with anxiety or someone that's struggling with substance use. And we can model some of those things in the animals as well. So they will take uh, drugs that people will take, so things like nicotine, amphetamine, heroin, and they also will go through periods of withdrawal if they don't have access to that, and they'll go through periods of relapse. So we can look at their relapse behavior, see what's happening in the brain using different biological tools, looking at brain chemistry, and see if we can alter some of those processes to dampen those relapse responses. 
Um, we also do the same thing with things like depression. Um, so we'll have the animals engaged in certain behaviors where they're looking for rewarding substances or looking for a sweet flavor. If they're in a quote unquote state where they've been exposed to chronic stressors and are in a depressed state, they won't show those behaviors in, as much. And so there's a bunch of different assays that we can use to get at that. Um, the gratifying piece for us is that we're now taking some of what we've found in the animal work and translating that to clinical studies. So bringing people into a laboratory setting, doing brain scans to see whether the interventions that work in the animal models can also decrease relapse and things like that in humans as well. Um, so that's the research side of things, but I also do a lot of teaching um, in terms of people in the lab with graduate students, with training, and then some courses as well. Nee, could you talk about what, what's an example of an intervention that you're testing on, on human patients now that might be something that affects or, or helps with these issues? Right. So a lot of what we're trying to do is actually repurposing. So taking advantages of medications that are already FDA approved that might have other uses as well. So one of the things that we're looking at is actually used for hypertension. So it blocks specific channels in the brain or throughout the body that are also found in the heart that can decrease um, blood pressure. But there has been a lot of work looking more recently at how there's also effects of these agents in the brain. So basically, we're taking an uh, anti-hypertensive drug and seeing what effects it has in the brain. And we found that it also seems to decrease relapse responses for drugs of abuse. So now we're taking that into a clinical setting seeing whether that also happens in humans and seeing whether it has the same brain processes that we find in rodents to decrease that relapse, if that also decreases craving and relapse of people. That's great. You know, as you're talking, I, I remembered uh, Penny and I forgot to say what the purpose of the podcast was. So <laughs> I do that now. The goal of this podcast is to talk to Christian faculty around the country in various fields to, for a couple of reasons. One, just to get a sense of how Christians are using their gifts in the university for the sake of university, church, and society, which is also the mission of the Carver Project. But then also, I think, to do the hard work of trying to understand the nuances as best we can of different disciplines and different areas of expertise. And so, you know, listening to you talk is great. It has nothing um, to do with anything I know anything about, and yet it's <laughs> extremely important uh, to our lives and, and, and the society in which we live. And so as we continue through this podcast and those to follow, I think we'll, we'll want to do the work with you and others of trying to tease out how, how and why this matters to people who might not mm-hmm. you know, uh, intuitively understand the depths of your research or mine or anyone else's. Um, you know, one thought I had is listening to you is uh, just on a very basic level, a, a number of Christians and other religious believers are uh, sometimes express a concern or reticence for any kind of medication, right? The idea that mm-hmm. that mental health is a spiritual matter and shouldn't be addressed medically. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've encountered some of those questions and objections along the way. And I'm curious about how you engage with those kinds of audiences. Right, right. And that's something we've started to focus on quite a bit in the last three to four years. So even though my quote unquote day job again, focuses on the brain biology and looking at different medical interventions. A lot of what I've been doing in the public sphere and the public sector has been trying to have integrated approaches and conversations about mental health. So really thinking about a holistic approach that integrates, you know, the biological components, integrates social components, cultural components, psychological components, faith components, um, and social justice. So really thinking about all the different aspects that come together. Um, and as you, you know, as you hinted at, sometimes there's pushback to that. 
So sometimes in academic settings, you know, I was teaching a class of med students at one point, again, focusing on the brain biology of relapse. And someone asked a question basically saying, well, what are we supposed to do with people that think that somehow there's a spiritual component or there's some higher being that can intervene and help them with their, you know, substance abuse challenges or their substance use uh, disorder and things like that. I mean, in a sense, he was the, the intent of the question was almost to say, what do we do with people who would be so foolish to think that, you know, something else higher could intervene? So on the one hand, in academic settings, I'm all often trying to remind people about the power of God to work in these situations. And that question itself shows a little bit of um, lack of understanding because there's so much evidence that shows that being a member of a community and being a member of a faith community can help people in terms of being protective against some mental health challenges, but also help people move through those mental health challenges. At the same time, I also get the other side. So I've had situations where I've been giving talks to undergraduate students and I've had students who've asked questions about, oh, well, I have, you know, a grandmother who doesn't understand why I want to be a neuroscience major. She has her own mental health challenges and everybody keeps telling her that the only reason she hasn't gotten better is because she's not praying hard enough and because her faith isn't strong enough. So you really see both sides of the spectrum start to come out. And so I've really been trying to make sure that we take advantage of all the different gifts that God has given us, both to work through his power, but he's also allowed us to be able to understand things about the brain, understand things mm -hmm. about how we interact with each other, about our psychology. And we shouldn't dismiss any one of those and get stuck in one framework. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating me. And I, I would love to hear a little bit more um, about your experience as a Christian teaching in higher ed, but I actually want to backtrack a little bit and um, just hear a little bit about your story to academia. Did you always know you wanted to teach? How did you arrive at that um, place where you knew that this was going to be a part of your journey? So I would say that's something that developed over time. Um, and the story goes back to my parents as well. So both of my parents were raised in Accra, Ghana. Um, and my dad is a psychiatrist. And when he started his training, there weren't that many psychiatrists in Ghana at the time. And there was a tension there about psychiatry and Christianity. And John, this goes back to the question that you asked too about, you know, are these things that we should just be praying through or are, are people opposed to medication? And so there's a tension mm -hmm. there that he was already walking through. Um, you know, as a son growing up, I think I had my initial, I don't want to do anything like my dad. I'm going to be completely different, be my own person, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> of course, you know, I'm now a professor of psychiatry. So clearly I didn't succeed in that, <laughs> in that goal. Um, but I think it's an interest um, that was there from just listening to him over the years. And when I was in college, I was trying to decide between a biology major and a psychology major. I actually had a psychology professor who told me not to major in psychology, which I found a little bit odd. Uh, but I think what he saw was the interest that I had in kind of this biological understanding. And so he was encouraging me to pursue that. And so it's something that developed slowly over time. Um, I had a lot of great mentors along the way. I had an undergraduate mentor who gave me a lot of research experience, who sent me to conferences and allowed me to give talks in front of other grad students and faculty members, which was completely intimidating, but also very um, challenging in a growing and developmental way for me as well. I had really great uh, mentors in grad school. Um, and I was also able to get involved in different programs um, that really encouraged me to think about the role that I could have as a professor in terms of mentoring the next generation mm -hmm. of scientists and trainees and educators 
So that was really the piece for me that stuck. Mm. Um, I was trying to decide, did I want to go into an industry setting, a pharmaceutical company, or go towards academia? Um, and one of my mentors at a summer program, uh, Dr. Jim Townsell, really kind of encouraged me and encouraged a lot of us who were in that program about the, the power of being able to mentor. And he was so passionate about mentoring. He unfortunately passed away this past week um, at an older mm. age, but had such a huge impact on so many neuroscientists, particularly um, underrepresented minority scientists. And so for me, that was kind of the, the impetus, seeing others who had gone before me, who are making a huge impact, who are giving us the skills to be able to have that impact, and really just helped me formulate my passion in that space as well, which I think was already starting to develop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned your undergraduate uh, experience. Where, where did you go to undergrad? Duke University, familiar school. Oh, Duke. Oh, Duke. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, there we go. I should have, I should have oh, known. Oh, my goodness. So, like, <laughs> so, uh, uh, depending on, actually, this is true. Nee and I knew each other at Duke. And, in fact, we, we played on a worship team together. Nee plays bass guitar, yeah. rhythm guitar. We, we had jam sessions as undergrad. That's very true. I, I mean, yeah, he was much better than I am. But, um, Nee, are you still playing the bass? It's been years, unfortunately. Oh yeah, well, well, I have Someday. deep admiration for your, yeah, for your musical <laughs> talent as well as your <laughs> ones. I guess I guess I should also take it back to where we connect. You know, being from Africa as well, I'm from Kampala, Uganda, and you're from Accra, Ghana. So there's mm-hmm. that connection. Sorry, Definitely. Um, but um, so you you mentioned you know your parents you know having grown up there. Uh, I'm curious to hear from you if um, one because you are sort of. Uh, in, in a field that um, is, you know, just really impressive, you know, brain biology, you know, all that good stuff. Uh, do you find that um, you're constantly having to articulate and explain to, to a lot of people what you do? But most specifically, I'm curious about your relations back in Ghana. One, if you get to go back there, but also does your grandmother, do your grandparents know what you do or um, what does that look like? Yeah, so I'd say that's something that's definitely um, improved over the years. Um, so it's been it's been years since I've been back, um, but I've had I mean I have a lot of relatives in Ghana, also throughout Europe, in the states, and I feel like the um, the needle is moving in a sense that I think people are being becoming more open to these types of conversations. I mean I think a lot of what we talk about in Ghana and other parts of Africa is, is similar in a sense to some of the conversations that we have in the US in the black community in terms of hesitancy to talk about mental health challenges um, even though I'm focused on the brain biology of it. So some of the I see a lot of parallels between some of the things that as black men, we go through in the U.S. of we don't talk about our business. Mm-hmm. We don't show emotion. Mm-hmm. I see some of those same things when I think about men in Ghana or men in Africa and some of the mm-hmm. um, some of the, the ways that we present ourselves and, and just that hesitancy to really go to that deeper level. But I also see things starting to move as people are talking about it. Um, there have been some good um, TED Talks from from folks in sub-Saharan Africa who've really addressed this issue head on. Different books that folks in the U.S. have been writing. Charlemagne the God wrote a book about his own challenges with anxiety and trying to really push past this this stigma and this this kind of mm-hmm. machoism in a sense to really not dig past that layer. I mean, that's not just black men. I think it happens with uh, black women as well, both in the U.S. and back on 
the African continent. And in some ways, there's a story there because black women are so strong and have carried so much that there is sometimes a thought that, well, you're so strong that if you're having any challenges with mental health or depression, you're strong enough to get through that and you don't need to ask for extra help because mm-hmm. black women have been such a bedrock and strength for so long. Sometimes there's not enough mm-hmm. room to say, no, I'm struggling. And no, there's more to this. There might be a biological basis to this. There may be a psychological basis. There may be a spiritual basis to this. And this is something that we need to address. So I think it's moving. There's still a lot of room for growth. Um, mm-hmm. But I've been encouraged by the way that the conversation seems to be shifting both back home and here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think in my experience, you know, with just the narrative in Uganda, I think mental health is something that we are now maybe possibly starting to um, talk a little bit about. I think when you look at the spectrum, we've always associated uh, mental illness with the, the, the extreme part of the spectrum where it's like, you know, very severe or, you know, these are, you know, people who uh, potentially, at least in Uganda, the rhetoric is sort of like, you know, they are sort of like mad or like crazy is that people who have like severe mental illness. So I think now we're starting to see, especially I think in schools, even at the primary level, um, there are being conversations just around even just anxiety, depression, and, and, and trying to put a name to it. Like, what do we mm-hmm. call it? I think in the Western world, you know, people say mental health, but I think, you know, for uh, some of our cultures, it's, you know, I think we're, we're trying to wrestle with what do we call this and, right. and what are those indicators and how mm-hmm. can we identify them early on and normalize those conversations yeah. because all we know is the extreme. Exactly. And another huge part of it, which you hinted at, is just access to the care too. So I have some yes. colleagues at Yale who started to do um, work back home in Nigeria just because there are so few mental health practitioners for so many mm-hmm. people um, in certain mm-hmm. regions of the country. So really making sure that people are educated like you said, to know what to call it and that they have access to the resources to address these things. is so important. Mm-hmm. Nee, we're, we're recording this in the summer of 2020. And in this present moment, we are in the midst of the COVID uh, health crisis and also nationwide uh, protests and attention to uh, matters of racial injustice and inequities. And I'm, uh, both of those obviously tie directly into the issues that you study and think about. And I'm curious about your reflections on the current moment, what you're, what you're feeling, maybe personally as well as professionally as, as, as you engage with the, the moment. Yeah. I mean, I'd say personally, it's been a lot of up and down. And I'll start with the COVID piece first. And I think personally, I was struggling with many of the same things that a lot of people were struggling with and just the removal of so many things that we take for granted at, that are important for our day-to-day routine and important for our mental health. So even simple things like, um, you know, having a consistent wake-up time or having a consistent exercise routine. I think a lot of us, myself included, were surprised at how how our energy seemed to be different during the beginning of oh, COVID. Wow. Like just that, you know, people feeling drained during the day and just that kind of loss of routine. So a lot of what we were trying to tell people initially was just try to keep some of those simple things in place you know, same wake up time, same time going to sleep, exercise and kind of building new routines because all those things help us in terms of our mental health on a day to day basis. Um, and in terms of exercise routines off even before COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that, that might be a whole separate (laughs) area to tackle, but I mean, there have been, so, I mean, that gets to the point because one thing we've been talking about is having new routines. 
Um, so from a brain standpoint, uncertainty is one of the challenges. So our brain works in ways where we're able to predict what's happening. That's it kind of helps us keep ourselves in a stable mindset. Um, so when you remove a lot of routines and you remove a lot of face-to-face interactions, all those things help with our mental health. So I think a lot of us are just struggling with losing that personal connection with others. But then there were also just a lot of losses that many people and many of us were going through. I mean, there were lost jobs, um, lost rituals, lost family gatherings, lost in-person graduations. And then at the end of the day, many lost lives as well. And so all of that was starting to take a toll. Um, so one thing we were, we were telling people is just to acknowledge the fact that there is going to be a level of anxiety that comes along with this, with all the uncertainty. I mean, as COVID was um, emerging, no one knew for certain what things would look like. There were a lot of predictions and the epidemiologists were um, giving us a lot of uh, guidance in terms of their understanding, but no one could predict anything with 100% certainty. So all that itself can also lead to um, a level of anxiety. Um, so really just making sure that people had a place to talk through those things and to be able to connect with other people, because that's so critical in terms of preserving mental health, but also dealing with mental health challenges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we introduced the, on top of COVID, um, the, s- since the, uh, since the, the killing of George Floyd and and the murder prosecution, that is uh, unfolding a lot of, um, you know, important attention to issues of racial injustice, mm-hmm. longstanding. I mean, these are not new issues mm-hmm. at all, but they are being talked about in new ways by mm-hmm. certain communities. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about how that factors into your thinking. Yeah. I mean, I can say I can start for, with my personal thoughts there. Um, so for me, that situation was challenging in a lot of ways, the George Floyd situation. And I think it's also been an up and down process. So for many of us and myself included, there's lots of different ways that people react to those things. So there's times when I've let myself mentally engage in it, which can become frustrating. There's periods of, of mourning, there's periods of outrage, um, there's periods of confusion. But then there are other times where I've intentionally kind of backed off and kind of muted it to almost buffer myself in a sense. Um, So with everything that was happening with George Floyd, I think I felt myself going back and forth between those. Um, And one way that I started to process it was just to kind of um, post things um, and tweet on social media, just some of the things that I was thinking through. Um, And one of the things that I mentioned is that it's been gratifying to see a lot of people stepping up and stepping into the conversation. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that's also a very mixed emotion because John, as you mentioned, these things aren't new at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as a black professor in an Ivy league setting for the last 10 years, there've been situations where I've had black students who've been in tears that I'm trying to console while I'm also working through my own pain. And I'm walking into a faculty meeting where everybody in the room seems to be oblivious to the pain that we're all going through as if nothing has happened or changed in the world. So it's been encouraging to see people step into that, but it also gives us a mixed feeling of why now and what mm-hmm. happened with all those. Now, obviously, that isn't the perspective I want to have as a Christ follower, always going backwards and, and you know holding on to past people's past misses or mistakes, but that all the emotion with that is still there. Um, and as you mentioned, from a mental health standpoint, even the American Psychological Association has acknowledged that seeing racial injustices repeatedly over and over again, especially seeing people who look like you who are killed unjustly, that in itself 
can have mental health consequences. So it makes people much more likely to be struggling with anxiety or depression or other mood disorders. So it's really a, a critical moment when we have COVID on top of these racial injustices and how that's affecting all people, but particularly affecting people of color who are, have been walking through this in so many ways for the last several years and in reality for the last 400 years in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, I absolutely agree with um, just, and I think about my own sort of um, response, or I guess way of dealing with um, a lot of the news and the heightened uh, awareness by a lot of people to these issues, which we all know are not new. I, I guess in some ways I found myself um, selfishly uh, taking the time to just distance and pace myself. Cause you know, this is like, I, I keep telling the few people I talk to that you have to think about it like a marathon. It is, you know, if, if, if you start out sprinting so hard um, and, 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 and you just go so fast, there's going to be like burnout and, and uh, a point where you can't really deal anymore. And, and I think in some ways, a lot of my colleagues um, who um, sort of I keep in touch with that we've been talking about a lot of these issues, um, we have sort of become more intentional about stepping away and um, just finding that pace that works for you. So limiting the amount of news you're consuming mm-hmm. or the amount of social media posts. So like, whether what that means like just like getting off social media for a while and not getting caught up in the hype and uh, of, 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 of this like heightened like response, 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 because yeah. whereas people are responding and, and being sort of woke to, to this, mm-hmm. you have to, like we've been sitting with this for a while. So yeah. for me, I have to, I have to sort of step back and remember I'm in this for the long haul, you know? So I think for a lot of people, you know, I, I find that they need to ask that question of themselves that, that why, like, why do you care about these issues? And I, are you in it for the long haul? Like, find where your pace is and then run with it. But I think for a lot of communities of color, um, you need to selfishly take the time to take care of you and yeah. step away and know that, you know, a lot of people have been fighting towards these issues for a very long time and that's not going to end. So, um, yeah, pacing. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, and I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, and the principle applies across the board, so both to COVID and the racial injustice. And that was one of the things we were telling people a lot at the beginning, um, even just with COVID itself, because it was so easy. You know, usually people will go on social media to kind of have a an outlet or relax, but once COVID hit and once everything uh-huh. started to hit with the racial injustice, that in itself started to become unhealthy. If you're scrolling through all of that, the whole day long. That's not, that's not an outlet. That's actually going to feed into all the emotions and all the anxiety and the fears. Mm. So a lot of times we were telling people have specific times when you'll check in on stuff, maybe once in the morning, once in the evening, but don't, don't be on there all day so that you can just manage your emotions. Um, it's the same mm. with the, the, the social injustices that have been happening too. Um, but the other thing from a mental health standpoint that we've been emphasizing is just making sure that people acknowledge the challenges that are there and really call things out. So to, to call out the injustice, to denounce it, and to all, also acknowledge that it's traumatic. Mm-hmm. So, so naming those things, I think, is really important and not pretending mm-hmm. that those things aren't there. But then it gets back into all the other practices that we talk about in terms of mental health. Naming it, but then also being willing to talk with others about it. And not just a surface-level interaction, but real, deep, vulnerable, honest conversations. Um, 
being willing to have times where you, you, you know you go to God in prayer about that, you pray with other individuals, and being open to whatever needs to be there. So for some people, the COVID situation, the racial injustice pushed them back into mental health challenges they were struggling with before. Um, so to be open to talking to you know a counselor or a therapist if that's needed, mm-hmm. to be open to medication if that's needed to help you move out of a certain state, and not to ignore the challenges, but also to to lean in in a sense and say, well, we have all these tools to deal with these challenges. The challenges are real, it doesn't minimize them, but at the same time, we're not going to ignore the tools that God has given us and allowed us to develop to deal with all these very real challenges that are in front of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, um, how, as you think about maybe these issues, but also just more broadly in your career and your profession, as a faculty member who's a Christian at a you know, non-religious institution like Yale, what what are some of the challenges and opportunities that you experience, and what are the you know ways in which you are either excited or, on the other hand, um, somewhat apprehensive about being public as a Christian at a place like Yale? Yeah, I would say it's changed over time. Um, been different from when I was a trainee versus a faculty member. So when I was a trainee, I did see not a lot of. Um, not a lot of vitriol or anything like that, but more a shock factor. Um, so I remember mm-hmm. we had a student who was visiting us from the UK um, who had you know, interacted with me as a scientist and knew about my training and the research I was doing. And at one point also found out was a, I was a Christian. And for him that like, he just couldn't, like basically his jaw dropped open because he couldn't put those two together in his mind. He just couldn't fathom that someone could be a, a deep Christian and also a scientist. Um, and so for him, it was, you know, it was more of a shock factor like this. This just doesn't, that's just not the way things are. Um, and so I've had some of those types of interactions uh, over the years. Um, but I think as, you know, I've gotten further in my uh, career, people have like that kind of initial surprise has been diminished. And I think as we've been talking about these things more, uh, both in academic settings and in church settings, I think that's been helpful as well. And this is not new. I mean, there are others who've, who've walked through that in a lot of different ways. Um, I think also when Francis Collins was a, uh, appointed as the NIH director, that was another instance where people saw someone that was deeply serious about their faith and also mm-hmm. about their science. I mean, people have had different conversations about agreements or disagreements with philosophy and things like that. But I think it's been helpful to see other Christians in the high profile scientific uh, positions. Mm-hmm. I would say now things have moved even further. And I think part of that, and this is just my own speculation, a part of that, I think, also has to do with this topic of mental health and people, you know, it can be such a serious challenge for so many individuals. I think that's allowing people to be open to the different ways that we would approach mental health. So I think people are much less hesitant or much more hesitant to, to say something pejorative about someone using spiritual practices to deal with a very real mental health challenge. And like I said, there's also evidence where those things can help. Um, so for me personally, I haven't seen as much pushback recently as we've tried to talk about this um, holistic approach. Obviously, that can change when you get into aspects of our faith that might not fit all the aspects of the culture. But at least at the level where we tried to talk about how important this is, I've seen people really start to um, embrace that. And I see it. I think it also gives people a tangible way to see faith being walked out in integration with other areas of life. Um, so, you know, I'm not I'm not researching and saying, well, I'm only going to pray over the animals or pray over the cells and see if things change. <laughs> There's action that comes along with that too. So, 
Right. Yeah. I mean, as you're saying that, it reminds me too that you are equipped to make arguments about the significance of faith because you've spent a career working to establish the, you know, the other aspects of your job, the science and the medicine and and those areas so that you can do that bridge building integration because you're taken seriously on the other dimensions. I think that's just really important and great. Um, We're coming close to the end here um, of our uh, inaugural podcast. Uh, Panina, I wonder, do you have any uh, any last questions for Ni? For you? No, I have a question for Ni. I thought thought you said for you, for Ni. I actually, uh, just maybe to follow up a little bit on your previous um, sort of um, points about um, being a faculty uh, of faith, I am curious to hear, not knowing much about... um, what uh, sort of programs you have at Yale, but do you have a community of um, other, let's say like Christian faculty or believers where you go to replenish and, you know, engage in conversations and just be uplifted? What, what, what do you have access to? Right. So there are quite a few different organizations on campus. Um, and some of them I've been involved in over the last uh, 10 years, some here and there. Um, but there is also there's a faculty fellowship at the medical school, which involves, you know, graduate students, medical students, uh, physicians, scientists. Um, but there's also some broader faculty gatherings on campus as well. So for me, those have always been encouraging. Um, academia in itself and even at Yale tends to be very good at isolating individuals, despite mm-hmm. how much we <laughs> try to interact and collaborate. So a lot of times at those meetings, I would meet people and say, oh, I had no idea that you were here. So it's been helpful to meet other Christians on campus and to have those opportunities to, to interact. The Rivendell Institute is another group that's uh, particularly strong in that area and brings people together from different aspects and different walks of life on campus. But then also reaches out to the broader community and has more general conversations about how faith integrates into the greater academic sphere. Um, there's also a lot of student groups, a lot of uh, groups on the undergraduate campus and the graduate school. So there have definitely been places um, to have those conversations on campus. And I've been fortunate to have those um, with people like John, people at other schools as well. So it's really been a mixed community between Christians at Yale and others in different parts of the academic world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Do you have any, um, maybe just give you the chance for the last word. If you had one word of encouragement or advice for people listening to this podcast who are interested at the uh, about the intersection of university church and society who are interested in how christians are speaking uh into higher ed and also learning from higher ed and trying to engage with the church as well um uh, this is a big ask but do you have one maybe closing thought that you might want to leave people with yeah i would say the most important thing in those endeavors is, is authentic community um So there's lots of layers that come to that. I mean, when I think of authentic community, I think of people who are able to be real about who they are, but who are also listeners and able to listen and understand where other people are coming from. Um, So not being so stuck in their own mindset that they can't have empathy and think about where the other person's experience is. Because I think if we're really trying to have those broader conversations of impact, it really will take us being a community beyond whatever framework we carry ourselves. I I, I mean, I honestly feel that that's what Christ has called us to um, in a lot of ways. And there's so many opportunities for that in the moment that we're in um, with COVID and the moment that we're in with all the racial injustice 
I think when you when you capture that, when people are truly able to put themselves in that place of I'm here as a member of this community, I might not look like you, but I'm going to try and understand your experience to relate to it and to reach out to you and walk through these things with you. I think that goes a long way. That's a that's a great last word. Nee, thanks okay. so much for joining us. It's been great to have you here. Yes, thanks, thanks. so much. It's been a great conversation. Okay, have a great uh, rest of the day. You too.